0: Welcome back to Imago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Amago Day, meaning we are all deserving of dignity because we are all made in the image of God. This week, I'm excited to be sharing this platform with Pastor Alicia Johnston, the author of the new book, The Bible and LGBTQ Adventist where she addresses queer theology and answers a number of questions about the Bible and what it has to say regarding LGBTQ persons, relationships, origins, and marriage. If you'd like an opportunity to win a free copy of Pastor Alicia Johnston's new book, listen to the end of this episode and find out how you can win your free copy today. So maybe we can just start off with a little background. We'll focus on the book and the contents of the book, and maybe you can start with a little bit of background on kind of you getting interested in this topic. So you were a pastor, an Adventist pastor at some point. You went to the seminary, and at some point you resigned from that position. And I'm curious what led to that resignation and... In what ways was your identity shifting or your theology shifting that called for that? And is that the correct term? Did you feel like you resigned or do you feel like the church was kind of pushing you out
1: and there was a... No, there wasn't an option to keep pastoring after I came out openly as being affirming and also as being bi. I mean, I would have kept pastoring if they would have let me. (laughs) Right, right, right. And
0: I say that critiques that I've heard is like, well, she's not even Adventist anymore. And I've never heard you make that statement or that these are not things that are valuable to you. And Adventism is like, what does that even mean? Like who who is, I think that's also a self-disclosed term. Right. There are a lot of people who grow up Adventists who retain Adventism and kind of morph it into the things that are important to them. But that's something that I, I perceived of you. I didn't ever perceive you as like walking away from the church as people often
1: yeah, I wonder why they say, they're saying that. I'm. I wonder what, on what basis they're making the judgment call that I'm not Adventist anymore. That's interesting. I am a member of the Seventh day Adventist Church still. I, I, I always feel a little bit weird about this question. Like it's kind of like if you're married to somebody and they divorce you, and someone's like, "Do you still consider yourself married to that person?" You know? <laughs> right. It's like, it's like it's a little bit weird. Yeah. It's a little bit weird because there's not space in the Adventist church for me to do the things that the Bible talks about church being, you know, to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ and to contribute in my spiritual gifts in the way that God's called me to isn't something I can do within institutional Adventism anymore. So that, so it's, it's kind of like, Hey, let me kick you out and then blame you for being kicked out. And now we don't have to listen to you because we kicked you out. And this is, this is the way that institutional thinking just gets reinforced and people discredit any ideas that they don't already agree with. You know, when somebody makes a really concerted effort, like I have to explain affirming theology for seventh day Adventists, and they're still not willing to listen to that because I'm not a good enough Adventist. It's not about me anymore. It's not about me anymore. If, if we never listen to anybody who disagrees with us, like it doesn't have to do with the people we're not listening to. It has to do with us and our own lack of curiosity and lack of desire to open ourselves up to the possibility that we could be wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you. It's one of those things where it's like, if a tree fell in the forest, did not it make a sound? If an Adventist exists outside the institution, are they still Adventists? <laughs>
1: Uh, and I see, I see myself as like, okay, now I'm I'm still serving the Adventist Church in the way that I can, which is right. from the outside. It used to be from the inside, and now it's from the outside. And there's some cool things I can do from the outside I could never do from the inside. So it's interesting yeah. to me.
0: It's so interesting. I'm in my own kind of um, wrestling with this heritage that I chose mm-hmm. in so many ways, you know, it's something that I, I chose. I think everyone who's in the church at some point made the conscious decision that this is, even if you were born in the church, mm-hmm. right, you say this is mine or this is what I believe. And I think there's a lot of questions that have come up. And I think many people, because of whatever, whether it's this LGBTQ movement or this podcast of their own, emergence of self-discovery, they're asking questions and saying, you know, Adventism institution doesn't really fit with me personally. I don't know how to bridge the gap, so maybe I'm just going to walk away. And Mm. I was curious, you know, when you wrote this book, was this kind of your own way of bridging the gap for ways that other people didn't bridge it
1: for you? Yeah. You know, I had a few different motivations for writing the book, but one of them was definitely which really impacted the way I wrote it was writing the book that I had needed maybe, you know, five, 10 years earlier, or even earlier than that, you know, the book that I needed to read that would have been transformative for my life had it existed. So yeah, the the ideas that were never considered in my circle and were never okay to talk about or learn about. Yeah. That I needed, that I needed to hear. So that was a huge part of That was a huge part of writing the book because there's a lot of other people out there like me. Yeah.
0: And what are some other motivations? Like, how did you get started? When did you start this book? I mean, I'm sure it's been a long
1: process in the making. Well, I did a lot of theological study before I came out. And one of the things I've learned is there's a really big difference between studying something enough that you really grasp it and are confident in it. There's a big difference between that and studying something enough and learning how to communicate it to other people in a way that's effective. So as I was coming out, I just had a very strong desire to to share some of the things that I've learned that have been so transformative to me. And I did some blogging, and those those blogs were eh, they were kind of okay. You know what I mean? Like some of them maybe were good, some of them maybe weren't. But I really started to think about how can I how can I really communicate these things in a way that is more effective and that that can can that people can hear and so i started learning about why it is that people sometimes can't hear an idea and how you can best communicate an idea so i started reading about that learning about that thinking about that just doodling down ideas and that was really for the first year so i wasn't writing yet and that was really for the first year after i came out. And then maybe about a year later i really started seriously writing, which was another year plus year year and a half that i was really seriously writing and then another year and a half or 2 years of revising because that's what writing is actually like. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, there's over 200 footnotes in the book. It's like it's a it's a it's a big theological book, so these things aren't easy to write by any means. So it, t- it took some time. It really took some time and just time for me to mull over ideas and think about them. And I read many more books in the process. I think you have done
0: a wonderful job unpacking a lot of, I think, specifically Adventist curiosities and theology. And you kind of start off with talking about this kind of link between Sabbath and marriage, and Mm -hmm. that seventh day Adventism, that the seventh day is so critically ingrained into Adventist, and the connection with marriage, um, you know, the way that it's taught is Sabbath and marriage are the two things that came out of the Garden of Eden, right? And Mm -hmm. so you think that just like you know, Sabbath is very important. Marriage itself and the way that it came out has to remain exactly the same as you saw it in Eden. And how are some of the ways that you
1: address those concerns in your book? Yeah, thanks. The phrase that's sometimes used is Sabbath and marriage are the twin institutions of creation. So the institution of marriage and the institution of the Sabbath. And if you get rid of marriage, you're going to lose the Sabbath too. I do think it's especially hypocritical with evangelicals who don't believe in a Seventh-day Sabbath, who actually were the ones to really pioneer some of this terminology about one man, one woman, and stuff like this. So, you know, Adventists have a concern because Sabbath is at the heart of our identity. So they think. Isn't affirming theology just throwing out Genesis 1 and 2 and just saying, ah, this just doesn't apply. And if we do that with marriage, why don't we do that with the Sabbath? So what I'm advocating for is not throwing out Genesis 1 and 2, but actually paying really close attention to what it says. And what it says, I mean, not to be pedantic, but the first verse of the Bible, it says in the beginning. So, and the word Genesis means beginning. So it says it's a beginning, and what does it describe creation as again and again? It describes it as good. It does not describe it as the only good. It doesn't describe it as a rule. It's not written like a set of rules. It's not written in the way that the laws were written. So it, it's not a set of laws. It's a, it says it's a beginning, and it says it's what's good. But we already do not believe it's the only thing that's good. Adam and Eve were married, and that was good, but we don't believe that celibacy is not good. If we understand that celibacy can also be good, there are other good things besides what was good in the beginning, because that's what beginnings are like by nature. They're they're the beginning. They're not the ending. There is the whole rest of the Bible does exist. (laughs) And throughout scripture, you don't see people looking back at Genesis 1 and 2 and treating it like a Restrictively, they don't look at Genesis one and two and say, "Oh, we can't have careers outside of agriculture," which some people have advocated for historically. Have have believed that was ethically that we should all live off the land. So people have seen this as a moral issue,
0: right? But, and you're referring to you know taking Adam and Eve, and you say this in your book, like, and I think it's such a brilliant distinction. That some people take Adam and Eve as a model rather than as the Mm -hmm. beginning. And we're not copying everything that they're doing. You're saying Adam was a farmer. He tilled the ground. And if this is the model, then we
1: all should be doing this or we're sinners, basically. Exactly. And it's so selective. You know, we we take part of it. Even if we say, which they base a lot on this, where it says male and female, he created them and then he commands them to be fruitful and multiply they base a lot on this and saying the male and female must must have to do with the ability to procreate there's there's a lot of issues with that because for one thing those two verses are actually written in different genres like the the it's it's a poetic lines where it says you know let us create let us create man in our own image male and female let us create them or male and female he created them that's poetry. And then it goes on in prose and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and dominate it or care for it. However you want to, that's a whole nother conversation. Dominate (laughs) and care are (laughs) definite. Right. Right. So if you're, if you're taking like a line of poetry and you're defining it with the next line in prose, and you're saying, this is what it means. There are some problems there, like you really think that the author definitely intended to define what male and female meant by procreation when it's not clearly stated in the text. But also we don't demand that everybody procreate, you know, so it says be fruitful and multiply. It's kind of the first command that God ever gave, and it's not one that Jesus seemed concerned with fulfilling. So that command doesn't seem to be a command that applies to every human being. It appears from the text that that is a general command for humanity, which also in that poetic verse, when it says Adam, as Hebrew scholars know, it's it's really referring to like the human race, not one person. It's a collective singular, like people is a collective singular word. So you know this is this is referring to humanity, which is what we mean when we say actually the institution of marriage. Institutions are. Social institutions, and they require a society. Weddings take like Adam and Eve didn't have a wedding because there was no society to recognize their marriage. Marriage was not an institution in the Garden of Eden because there was no there was no society to have an institution. Inst- it, institution is in itself a later concept. And in fact, the word marriage isn't even used for what happened with Adam and Eve the word marriage doesn't come in until later. So we're just, we're, I I understand that it seems like a really simple thing that marriage was created in Eden, but actually like, like that, that's a nice soundbite, but it, it represents a lot of inconsistency in how we're looking at the text and what we're even understanding a social institution to be.
0: Exactly. Just to jump in right there. I think something that, you made me think of as, you know, to put the emphasis and the value on the male and female being together as a procreative act, and that is itself what's good. It's like, well, you even look at stories of women in the Bible who were barren, or maybe their husbands were barren, and they were given, taken the fall for it. But like, you know, the fact that they were not able to have children God didn't look upon them and say you sinner or like this wasn't a punishment for some bad deed or that this wasn't something that was wrong with them. I'm I'm 35. I do not have children. I probably never will. <laughs> My time is quickly running out if I did have plans for that. And I just don't see it as something that was ever that, that I ever desired or something that was a big mm. uh, something that I needed to fulfill and I don't feel like less of a woman or that God's displeasure because I'm not fitting into that role. So if we make marriage about having children alone, it really leaves out all of the other people who do life differently and mm-hmm. kind of cast judgment upon these alternative ways of being.
1: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I'm going to suggest within that context that if we look at Genesis with the language, that's in the text that says these things were created and they were good not as restrictive things to say other things can't be good these are the only it doesn't say these are the only things that can ever be good if we look at it that way it it makes room for like the things that happen in the rest of the bible you know it, it makes and it makes room for the reality of the lives we actually live and we can read the text consistently that way like if you're using one rule for when adam and eve get married and a different rule for when they are told to work the land when god tells them to work the land if you're if you're using different rules for how you interpret it like it has nothing to do with the bible anymore it's just like your ideas that you're projecting onto the bible so if if we if we think about it in these terms like god made all these good things and they're going to keep being good like heterosexual marriage is going to keep being good. It's okay, guys. It's not going away. <laughs> you know the whole threat to marriage thing, which is just really hard sometimes to understand. Like this is not saying that heterosexual marriage isn't good. You guys are okay. We just want you to see that we're okay too. Like that's what this whole thing is about. So, yeah. And to connect that with so now that we've have that background to connect back with the Sabbath, right? Which is kind of how we started. The Sabbath, incidentally, is not called good, it's called holy. It's the first thing that's ever called holy, which, if you've read Abraham Heschel's book on the Sabbath, it's just amazing. He talks about the Sabbath being a temple in time and an acknowledgement of the power of God, that God God isn't just found in this place or that place. God has power over time itself. And that the first thing that God called holy wasn't a thing. It wasn't a place. It wasn't some place you could go visit and here's where God is and God's not in the other places. No, it was like time itself. It's a really powerful idea. So the Sabbath, the seventh day is holy. God calls it holy. This is not actually a restriction on holy things happening on other days, right? It, It isn't to say there's something on Sabbath that you do that you can't do on every other day or any other day, right? We, we do the same things on other days. Sometimes that we do on Sabbath, we have sermons, we meet in the church, we pray, we sing all those Sabbath things, or we even rest and take time with God alone on days that aren't the seventh day Sabbath. Like it's okay. And even in the old Testament, this concept went so far as other days actually being called Sabbath. Like it went that far, like that. These annual feast days were called Sabbath. So so this this idea of like this kind of restrictive rule, this is the only thing. like it just doesn't hold water. And the other key distinction that's important to make is that the Sabbath was made for everyone, like all humanity. The seventh day Sabbath is holy for everywhere. we enter into this holy time and and we acknowledge it or we don't. But marriage, is not something that we think of as made for everybody. You know, the best example that we have for our lives is Jesus who wasn't married. So marriage, and I mean especially in the New Testament where celibacy is really celebrated, marriage is not an institution that's for everyone. So when you look at the text in this way, which I think is entirely consistent, how do you get to a restriction on same-sex marriage from this text? I just don't see how you can get there because it's not restrictive of who can be married. It's not a, it's not a model that we turn into a rule that we have to then emulate for the rest of our lives. Like, that's just not, that's just not what the text is. And so I don't think we can get to restriction. That's not to say, Oh, it was definitely teaching that same sex marriage is acceptable, but it's definitely not teaching that it's not acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) right when we look at it a bit more closely you also you make this great point
0: too and in comparing to this idea of cities right that cain was the first builder of cities and you talk about how something that was once looked upon as maybe an evil that there's like a progression of integration over time where Mm -hmm. the city we end up in Or the the heavenly city is called a city, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? I think that's such a cool point.
1: Yeah. If you just took the first few chapters, like the first nine chapters of Genesis, and you ask yourself, does the Bible teach that cities are morally acceptable? You might come to the conclusion that no, they're not okay. Because, you know, especially if you're using this frame for understanding Genesis, because Adam and Eve, lived kind of in the open air, you know, in this garden that they were cultivating. So they worked agriculturally. They lived in the open air. They, they grew food from the ground. And so then you move on and you have Cain and Abel and Cain, actually the first murderer, you know, the first sinner, well, second sinner, I guess, in the Bible, the first murderer in the Bible, and he murders Abel. And then after that, he goes on to found the first city. And in that city, there's a greater differentiation of labor. You have people who are musicians and and make flutes and stuff. So you have this division of labor that happens for the first time. And it's all very evil, (laughs) you know, created by the first murderer. They're kind of like the shunned people. And then it it kind of culminates in the the Tower of Babel, you know, this, this, this great kind of human achievement, like they're not working the ground anymore at all now their their arrogance has grown as they've stepped away from the, the vocation that god has given them and they're trying to build this huge tower so that they can be like god and what does god do like god strikes it down and he like destroys this tower right so <laughs> you you could see why just reading those chapters people could come to the conclusion like cities are pretty bad But then you have Abraham who comes along and he meets this priest of Salem, which is kind of the beginning of Jerusalem. And you begin to see, well, and also Sodom and Gomorrah is another evil city story, right? Where Abraham is living in the fields. But when he meets this priest of Salem, this is the, this is like, the beginning of the founding of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem becomes this promised city that now God is going to make cities a good, now God's going to make a good city. And this even comes to the point of the new Jerusalem becoming like God's promise to God's people. And the last chapters of Revelation being like the revelation, like that that the new Jerusalem descending from the sky is the city of God with streets of gold and the lines of the city and the measurements of the city just show that it's good and that it's perfect and that it's just and that everyone is welcome here it's just like this this beautiful thing so like some people want to say gay people or bi people or trans people are there because of the fall ergo their desires are sinful but that's not what we find in the bible what we actually find is that a lot of the effects of the fall are things that God redeems. Like the greatest act ever is the crucifixion of Jesus that never would have happened without the fall. Like, like this is the nature of what God does is, is take things that we think are bad and make them beautiful and good and holy and shows us that the love of God is more expansive than we thought it was. Another story of that is the eunuchs. So they are these people who are thought of as like damaged goods. You know, we might think of them as intersex people today, or maybe they had something, uh, some kind of an injury that, that damaged their genitals or something like that. And they weren't allowed in the holy places And they weren't allowed in the temple and they they weren't allowed in all these places in Israel. They were kind of like second class citizens. And then you find in the book of Isaiah that God is like glorifying these eunuchs. Like God is giving these eunuchs a place and, and they're fully welcomed into the community. And this shows that God is God. This, this redemption and acceptance and inclusion of the eunuchs who were sexual minorities, who were who gender minorities, outside of the normal gender roles that you might have. And God accepts them and welcomes them. And this is a sign of the goodness of God and the power of God to redeem people that were seen as unacceptable. And, you know, in the gospel of John, John calls the crucifixion of Jesus the glory of God the glory. Like this is kind of the nature of what God does is takes those people that everyone else deems are not good enough and sanctifies them to show the glory of God and actually redeems them and makes them even in some ways like a little better than everybody else. This is what Jesus says about the eunuchs. Not everybody can do this only certain people are given this this gift of being a eunuch and many many eunuchs again would have been intersex people and it's just it's fantastic it's it's beautiful like this is this is the gospel like (laughs) right right and it's so
0: it's such a a story of inclusion in so many ways Mm -hmm. and it's funny you know I think as I get older and As I see um, how difficult it is to reach some of my dreams, even career dreams and things that I, I had thought were so within my grasp when I was younger. As you get older and you realize this journey is a lot longer than I thought it would be, (laughs) and you start recognizing advantages that other people have had to get there faster than you. And I look at things like the American Dream, or even the models of Adam and Eve, and the way that the church has presented, and in so many ways, it's it's a preaching to a privileged class, right? Mm-hmm. To say, here are these two individuals that we are going to uphold as what everyone should become, but there's never the question, can everyone become? You know, for for a variety of reasons, you know, like is this their orientation? Do they want to be heterosexual people? Right, like. We, we give the vision of, of what should be obtained to, and we put a lot of shoulds, but is it possible? Can it be done? And if it can't be done, isn't it an exclusion? Isn't it an inclusive? Is this a really an inclusive message, or is this a very exclusionary, elite message that is only accessible to some? And in that case, who is your church, right? It's definitely... It looks a lot different than what we see in the New Testament as Jesus being a very inclusive in his ministry, the widow, the poor, the Samaritan, the outsider. And I don't know if that, would you, do you think that the church is modeling itself after an inclusive model or have you run across
1: this exclusionary practices as well? If you look at the church, like big picture, like, you know, As if you're looking out the plane window, big picture at the church, it's easiest to be a Christian or a Seventh-day Adventist, like the more privilege you have in society. The more privilege you have, the easier it is to be a good Adventist. The less privilege you have, the harder it is to be a good Adventist. And this applies also to the conservative church in general. And this is absolutely not what Jesus taught. Jesus said it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is very easy for a rich man to enter the Adventist church. (laughs) This is extremely (laughs) easy. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like if we look at barriers to marriage, poverty and education and things, things like this, that, that make marriage more difficult to attain like more and more, In our society it's the privileged people who are getting married and if we really want to strengthen marriage we need to alleviate poverty (laughs) we need to increase education we need to work on our issues with police brutality and injustice and and things like this that make it very hard you know for some demographics to get married and then we judge them for that as if they're morally less because they're living in the situations that were created by people who have more privilege and are able to attain to these markers and say, well, you didn't attain to these, these these markers that, you know, my section of society has made so difficult for you to attain to. It's It's not, it's just like opposite of what Jesus taught, you know, and even if you look at the Sabbath commandment. I don't think I've shared this anywhere yet, but I've just just been thinking about the Sabbath commandment. Who is the Sabbath commandment addressed to? It's addressed to the person who has land. It's addressed to the landowner who has authority over an entire household, including slaves, and who has cattle. So it's addressed to the person who has resources in society. And most of the words in it apply not to the person who has the resources resting, but to that person extending that rest to the whole household. I have never once in my life heard of the Adventist church censoring someone for not extending the privilege of Sabbath to their employees.
0: This is true. i anybody who wants to hear more about this. I did a paper on this, actually. You did? I, yes, and I and I did it, <laughs> and I I read it for my podcast, my Kendra Arsenault podcast, and it was like the Sabbath of social justice, right? Because yes. like you're saying. It is directed to those who have power. You know, Mm -hmm. it is directed to those who would be in charge of whether or not this person is able to rest. And the fact that it's also this equalizing statement because it talks about he makes a differentiation between the male servant and the female servant. And he's trying to say this isn't an an exclusive thing that only some people have access to. It is for everybody. And so... I think yeah, exactly. How many times have people have censured the people who have power for not allowing them to rest but the people who are working paycheck to paycheck. These are the people who are like, why are you not keeping Sabbath? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, exactly. And those 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 people who are called servants, that word is a little bit ambiguous. So that could refer to Hebrew bond servants who kept the Sabbath or it could also refer to Gentile enslaved people who were enslaved for life and who really didn't even have a Sabbath observance themselves. And yet I, I've never, never, ever have I heard faithfulness to the Sabbath being articulated in terms of you shall not have anyone in your employee work on the Sabbath day. And never have I ever heard someone criticized or censored or kept from the Adventist church because they had a Subway franchise, for example, or something like i've I've never heard that before. so there's there's just like this degree, and that is indicative of the way that we flipped it, you know, where the the Sabbath commandment was given to the person who has the power to release someone on the Sabbath. And yet when we apply it, and when we criticize people for not being holy enough, it's the people who actually are really struggling, maybe, don't have a lot of financial support maybe work in retail and really you know I know people who have had their careers really sidelined who were poor because they weren't willing to do things like go to training on the sabbath and and progress their career by working on the sabbath and they were in poverty and we're we're very up for kind of saying well they should trust god and they shouldn't do that but we, it just never goes the other way around
0: right and where it is never this never does administrative power that's going to put pressure on the institution is like oh you know somebody's making you work on sabbath and let me go ahead and write a letter to your employee like you never like maybe there are some instances and i'm not gonna totally discredit that but like is that really where the emphasis is like if you really did believe that it. yeah 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 I haven't heard a story, maybe I heard a story somewhere in another country that happened 10 years ago, but like, are mm-hmm. are you really supporting people and standing up to big industries who really, you know, are we critical of cheap labor and, and kind of what we have now, this kind of slave labor mm-hmm. in industries? Are we calling out big businesses who don't give their people a, a, a working wage so they have to work seven days a week? Like, where is that type of advocacy?
1: If we believe in this so much, it doesn't show, right? And what it comes down to is that the things that cause pain to middle-class educated Adventists are not the things that we address. Those are not the things that we make an important part of our faith, particularly white middle-class Adventists. So the, we, those are not the things that we make moral issues or an important part of our faith. And, it, and it, it's this big picture thing about what is God doing in the world? What's the purpose of this whole thing? What were the teachings of the prophets? What are the teachings of Jesus? And in the heart of the soul of the gospel, is that something that we as a church are carrying out? And I think that the answer is no. And what's a lot easier than dealing with that is coming down on people for cohabiting or getting divorced or being gay or or all the or or breaking the Sabbath. That's a lot easier to do than reckoning with our part in the world and society and bringing about the kind of justice that's called for by Jesus and the prophets and in the scriptures.
0: Thank you so much for listening to part one of this episode. Please know this is a snippet of a smorgasbord of information in Alicia Johnston's new book, the Bible and LGBTQ Adventist. As promised, if you'd like a chance to win a free copy, please write to at Adventist Forum on Instagram and submit any LGBTQ related question you might have to at Adventist Forum on Instagram. If you'd like to get in contact with the author and pastor Alicia Johnston, you can follow her on Instagram at Pastor Alicia Johnston or buy her book on her website, www.alishajohnston.com. I am so grateful for all of you who continue to reach out, ask questions and share personal stories. If you'd like to write to me, feel free to do so at Kendra Arsenal with an X on Instagram or Facebook. And if you're enjoying the content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple podcast and share this episode with a friend. You can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship, and be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly, edited by Ari Bates, and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.